0: Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time, so let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. I recently got the book The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore, and this episode is heavily based on it. It's also a pretty thick book, great news to anyone who loves to read, like me, so there will be a few episodes dedicated to it. It's a fantastic read, easy to get into, and I found myself pretty quickly invested in these heartbreaking stories. I highly recommend it if you want to learn more about these women. I would like to give a warning before I start this episode. There are descriptions of medical issues that these women suffered, and some are graphic or disturbing. When Marie Curie first discovered what she called my beautiful radium, the glowing element seemed to be the way to a literal shining future for humankind. Its dangers were only understood by a select few in the science world, and to the public it was lauded as the greatest find of history, and when it was discovered that it could destroy human tissue, it was put to use to fight cancerous tumors with remarkable results, and it was assumed to be beneficial to one's health, deemed to cure almost any ailment. It was put in everything from moon dressings and pills by pharmacists, to radium jock straps, lingerie, Radium lined jars to make tonic waters, toothpaste, cosmetics, soaps, and household cleaners. It also permeated the culture, showing up in newspapers, cartoons, in plays, and even songs written about radium. But today we know, with all the light the radium gives off, there's still a very dark side to it. Mishandled, it can burn the skin, cause lesions, and exposure can lead to cancer. But when ingested, radium acts like calcium, tricking the body and taking its place in the bones, which then leads them to being riddled with holes and fragile. This becomes the main issue for the women I discuss later. Sabin von Suchalki, a scientist who worked with the Curies, an inventor of Undark, the luminous paint used for the watch dials and even military aircraft during World War I, founded the Radium Luminous Materials Corporation in New York with several plants in New Jersey and the company hired young women in droves to paint the numbers and hands of these dials to keep up with the demand during the war. Other companies would open up all over the U.S. doing the same. These women were paid well, and they felt so incredibly lucky to get to work close with this miraculous element. It was an enviable job to have. The paint they used was made from a powder containing small amounts of radium and zinc sulfide, which the girls mixed themselves with a gum arabic adhesive and the water. The radium's reaction to the zinc sulfide is what gave the paint the greenish-white glow. This powder got everywhere, floating about in the painting studio, settling on the girls in their hair, their clothes, and due to the painting technique they used, they were even ingesting it. They used fine camel hair brushes, and to get to the sharp point needed to paint the tiny numbers, they did what is called lip pointing, putting the brushes in their mouths to wet the ends and to pull the hairs together between their lips. They could then dip their brushes and paint. They would have to continually repeat this process, getting the residual paint in their mouths each time. And so the girls would lip-dip-paint six days a week. Lip-dip-paint and lip-dip-paint. When they would leave work, they would literally glow from the powder residue all over them, making them easily identifiable as the dial painters to everyone else. They became known as the glowing girls, literally shining in the dark on the way home. The roaring twenties were just starting, and the girls loved their jobs and the friends they made there, and they were all well paid, and life was good. They lived it up, painting their nails and even their teeth with the paint before a night out on the town, and wearing their fine dresses to work so they could glow even more at the dances on the weekend. In the summer of 1921, Von Suchocki was frozen out of his own company, Arthur Rader taking his place as president, and the company name changed to United States Radium Corporation. A little later that same year, a dial painter named Molly Magia started to have a toothache. She went to the dentist and had a tooth pulled, but weeks passed and the hole would not heal over. The pain in her lower gum and jaw only intensified. So she went to see Dr. Joseph Neff, who was recommended to her as an expert on unusual mouth diseases. He noted that even though it had been over a month now, the socket had failed to heal and her gums were inflamed, and some of the teeth around it were a little loose. Dr. Neff treated her for pyorrhea, a common inflammatory disease that affects the tissues around the teeth. Sure, that was the cause, as Molly showed all of the symptoms. But instead of getting better, she only got steadily worse, and Dr. Neff tried stopping the infection in its tracks by extracting the teeth causing her pain, but none of them ever healed and ulcers sprang up in their place, causing poor Molly even more pain. She continued working at the studio for a while, still using the lip-dip paint technique, even through the discomfort it caused in her mouth. She became quiet and withdrawn from her coworker friends, unable to focus on anything but the pain in her mouth, and embarrassed by the bad breath that came along with it. As weeks went by, she also started to have pains in her hips and feet as well, and the doctor, thinking it was rheumatism, just sent her home with some aspirin. Molly lived at an all-female boarding house, and one of the women living with her was 50-year-old Edith Mead, a trained nurse who cared for Molly at home as best she could. But no one could figure out what was happening to Molly, and she wasn't responding to any sort of treatment that was tried, instead only just steadily declining more and more. Her teeth began to fall out on their own, disintegrating and literally rotting in her mouth. This was called necrosis, meaning bone decry- decay. On January 24, 1922, her doctors, seeing a young single woman living away from home, tested her for syphilis, but the test came back negative. The dentist, Dr. Neff, now ruling out his initial diagnosis after doing some research, concluded that she was suffering from something similar to phosphorus poisoning, known as Fosse Jaw. The tooth loss, the gum inflammation, necrosis, and pain were all symptoms of it. He asked Molly how she was employed, and she told him, painting numbers on watches so that it will shine at night. He went to visit the radium plants after that, and asked for the ingredients used in the paint, but was refused. They only assured him that no phosphorus was used in the paint. He tested for it, but he couldn't find anything, and once again they were in the dark as to what was happening to Molly, who by now couldn't eat and could hardly speak. Her entire lower jaw, the roof of her mouth, and even the bones of her ears were abscessed, and she finally quit her job painting dials. In May, she saw Dr. Neff again, limping into his office from the pain in her hips and her feet. She barely had any teeth left. She did her best to indicate that her jaw especially was hurting, and Dr. Neff gently prodded the bone, and to his horror, the jawbone broke. He took it out, quote, not by an operation, but by merely putting his fingers in her mouth and lifting it out. About a week later, her entire lower jaw was removed, again by just lifting it out of her mouth. It became apparent that by removing any tooth or infected bone, rather than slowing down the spread, it was sped up. Dr. Neff tested her again for syphilis, although he was not proficient at this procedure and not a physician qualified to do so. The test came back positive this time, but Molly was not informed of the results. At the time, many doctors wouldn't tell their patients diagnoses like that, preferring to have them focus on getting better. Over that summer, she began to get painfully sore throats, and her jaw would spontaneously bleed. Her nurse housemate Edith did her best to stem the flow, pressing cotton bandages to Molly's face. Finally, in September of 1922, less than a year after the initial onset of the problems, the mysterious disease, quote, slowly ate its way through her jugular vein. On September 12th at 5 p.m., her mouth filled with blood and she hemorrhaged so quickly that Edith couldn't stop it. At 24 years old, Molly Magia, who used to have a beaming smile and was full of jokes, passed away, suffering what her sister Quintus said was a painful and terrible death. Her family was besides themselves, having lost their loved one, and the doctors couldn't even tell them why. Officially, it was put down that she died of syphilis and a secret her family tried to keep. Molly was buried on September 14, 1922. We now know it was the radium that made her sick and eventually killed her, and while she was the first to suffer, she wouldn't be the last. This included her sisters, Quinta and Albina, who also worked as dial painters, who would later have health issues themselves. Plenty of other girls started having health issues too, either suffering from toothaches or pains in their bodies, even those that had left their dial painting jobs years before. That same summer that Molly died, Irene Rudolph started having tooth problems, although she had left the radium factory long before this. It started with pain in her feet, but that became less worrisome than her mouth. She saw several dentists over the summer, but none of them were able to help. In August, she started seeing Dr. Walter Berry, but he was only confused by her condition. He and his partner believed it was Fosse Jaw, the same thing that Dr. Neff had thought Molly had. But the two dentists didn't have any connections to each other, so Dr. Berry was unaware of Molly's case. Dr. Berry told Irene that he thought it was occupationally related, but it never crossed their minds that it could be radium. In December, Irene was admitted to the hospital. She had heard of Molly's death, and so she told her doctor in the hospital that there had been a girl with symptoms just like hers, and there was another girl that was sick too. The other sick woman was Hazel Vincent, who was also suffering similarly who was diagnosed with anemia and pyorrhea and was suspected to have fussy jaw too because of the black discharge and the garlic odor coming from her nose and mouth. The doctor was convinced this was an occupational problem, but he was just wrong about the actual cause. Like the others, he blamed it on phosphorus poisoning and reported Irene Rudolph's case to the Industrial Hygiene Division, asking them to investigate. Within a few days, an inspector was at the plant to look into the claims of the doctor. The inspector was shown around by Harold Vietz, the vice president of USRC. The inspector incredulously pointed out the lip pointing, and Vietz told him that he had warned the girls time and time again of this dangerous practice, but he could not get them to stop it. This would have been news to the women painting the dials, and even the instructresses that taught them, and the four women overseeing them. Once, Seben von Sitchocki had told a woman named Grace Fryer, don't do that. When he noticed her lip pointing, but didn't say why, and it was never mentioned again to anyone else. Honestly, it seemed they didn't care how the women painted the dials, so long as the work got done and the material wasn't being wasted. The inspector took a paint sample for testing and sent it to John Roach, the deputy commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Labor, recommending they do a survey of the plant. Lillian Arxine was sent there a few weeks later, and as part of her investigation, she spoke with an authority figure on radium and informed Roach that, quote, no reports of necrosed bones as a result of radium treatment exist. She concluded that the women's sicknesses were probably coincidence from abscessed teeth and botched dental surgeries. Roach still had the paint sample to be tested, though, and arranged for the chemist Dr. Martin Smazowski to be the one to test it. He thought it highly unlikely that phosphorus was in the paint, though, and even before he ran any tests, wrote to Roach stating the women's conditions had been caused by the influence of radium. This was a radical idea to have at the time. While there are articles on the hazards and dangers of handling radium dating all the way back to 1906, there was far more written on the positive effects of radium. These researchers all worked for radium firms, though, and the knowledge about radium and its image was highly controlled this way. Dr. Szemotsky suggested that the women be warned of the dangers of the material getting on their skin and into their systems, especially their mouths. But this never happened. On April 6, 1923, with his tests done and not a single trace of phosphorus found, he wrote, I feel quite sure that the opinion expressed in my former letter is correct. Such trouble as may have been caused is due to the radium. On June of 1923, Grace Fryer, The woman, Stachowski had once told to not lip paint, was having aches and pains, and a hole opened up where a tooth had been extracted six months earlier. It oozed profusely, was painful, smelly, and disgusting tasting. On June 3rd, Helen Quinlan, another woman that had dial-painted and got sick around the same time as Irene Rudolph, passed away at 22 years old. Her death was blamed on Vincent's angina, a bacterial disease that starts in the gums and spreads throughout the mouth and the throat. Her doctor later stated he didn't know if there were lab results to back that up. Six weeks later, on July 15th, 21-year-old Irene passed away at Newark General Hospital. Her death was blamed on her work, but it was phosphorus poisoning put as the cause, which the attending physician at the hospital admitted was not decisive. Irene's cousin, Catherine Schaub, who had also worked as a dial painter, went to the Department of Health the day after Irene's funeral and filed a report told them about Irene's and Molly's sicknesses and deaths, and that another girl is now having trouble. She was sure it was something to do with pointing the brushes with their lips. A memo was filed about her visit, but ended with, a foreman by the name of Veet said the claims were not true. It went no further than that. Hazel Vincent was still being treated for pyuria and having more and more teeth pulled and struggling with the bills. In October of 1923, Marguerite Carlo, still working at USRC Dial Painting Studio, developed a severe toothache that made her face swell, but she struggled through it all fall. In November, Catherine Schaub began to have trouble with her teeth. She had witnessed what her cousin went through and went right away to see Dr. Barry, the same dentist that had treated Irene. He noted that her teeth broke easily and wrote in her file that she had been employed at the same place as Irene. He pulled two of her teeth, but it didn't heal over, and she returned to his office five times that same month. Of that month, Catherine said, I kept thinking about Irene and about the trouble she had with her jaw. There was some relationship between Irene's case and mine. Irene had necrosis, she died. Understandably, she developed mental health issues because of severe nervousness about her health. She then learned that another old coworker of hers, Catherine O'Donnell, had died on December 16th. Her death was attributed to pneumonia and gangrene of the lung. With Christmas approaching, Grace Fryer's foot began to bother her more until she was limping noticeably. Her family insisted that she see a doctor, and so she made an appointment for January. Marguerite Carlo finally went to the dentist on December 24th after she got off work. But when the dentist advised that the teeth hurting her be pulled... A piece of decayed jawbone came out, too. After that, she didn't return to work. The girls still at the studio weren't lit pointing anymore. That had been stopped earlier in the year, but the reason given to them was that the acid in their mouths was spoiling the adhesive in the paint. Unknown to any of the dial painters, the U.S. Public Health Service had issued a report in December on radio markers with formal recommendation that safety precautions should most definitely be used by all people handling radium. In the new year, Dr. Barry began seeing a lot more of these women. One after another, they came in with the same symptoms. He was seeing Catherine Schaub and Marguerite Carlo, who was the worst off, and after what had happened with Irene and Catherine's problems speeding up and worsening after teeth pulling, he told her he refused to operate her and could only offer to keep her under observation. His partner, Dr. Davidson, was seeing Hazel, Josephine Smith, and Josephine's sister and Marguerite's friend, Genevieve Smith. They all had varying degrees of mottled bone, and the dentist still had no idea what the cause was. With the numbers of women that he was seeing that had worked at the same place, Dr. Barry was sure it was occupational and told the Smith sisters, who were still working there, to quit or he would stop treating them. Josephine, the forelady lady now, didn't quit but did start tying a handkerchief over her nose and mouth to avoid inhaling the dust when she measured out the radium powder for the girls. Rumor of Dr. Barry's ultimatum reached USRC management, but they refused to recognize that there could be any sort of hazard for their employees. Grace Fryer's doctor, who was currently treating her for muscle-bound feet and chronic arthritis, was also seeing Jenny Stocker, whom Grace had worked alongside during the war, and was puzzled by the problems she was having with her knee. In fact, all across New Jersey, in the beginning of 1924, doctors were seeing patients with strange ailments they couldn't diagnose or cure. Hazel Vincent, now accuser after marrying her high school sweetheart, went to see Dr. Bloom, one of the best doctors in New York City. He had never seen a case like hers and described her jawbone as looking moth eaten. His provisional diagnosis was poisoning by a radioactive substance, far closer than anyone else had gotten to the cause of these women's sicknesses. Dr. Bloom did his best to treat her, operating on her jaw several times, but he told Hazel's husband, Theo, that there was little hope of recovery. By now, the suffering of all of these women was known throughout the community, and USRC was having difficulty recruiting staff, and the production was being held up. Genevieve Smith quit, citing Dr. Barry's ultimatum, and now Hazel's mother, Grace Vincent, wrote a letter to them saying she was about to make a claim for compensation on account of her daughter's illness. By this time, Hazel's husband was deep into debt paying for her care, and even his father's life savings had been spent and was gone now. Veet, the vice president, reported these to headquarters, and, now that it was affecting business, executives decided to launch an investigation into the claims that the work was dangerous, and Arthur Reiter, the president, took charge of it himself. He asked Dr. Cecil Drinker if he would conduct a study at the plant. Dr. Drinker was a qualified MD and well-recognized authority on the occupational diseases and a professor of physiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. He agreed to start the study in April of 1924, assisted by his wife, Dr. Catherine Drinker. In the meantime, Grace was doing better with her feet and her back, but her jaw began to bother her, and she soon fell into the same loop several others had, and had operations to remove part of her jaw, then another, then another. But the other woman Dr. Humphreys had been treating, Jenny Stocker, died suddenly after an illness when she was only 20. The day after Jenny passed away is when Arthur Rader met the Drinkers to show them around the plant, meeting several of the women who worked there. Marguerite Carlo was there, although she no longer worked there. She told them of pains in the bones of her face and was holding a bandage to her cheek, which was seeping. Her sister, Sarah Malafir, who did still work there, also met them. She was a single mother in her 30s who was now walking with a cane due to issues in her hip and leg. Catherine Drinker told Rader that a day's tour couldn't be considered adequate enough and they made plans to return on May 7th and 8th to do a more comprehensive study of the plants and the employees. In the meantime, they read up on radium along with their colleague, Dr. Castle. When they came back, they met the chief chemist, Dr. Edwin Lehman, and noted he had serious lesions on his hand. When it was brought up, he didn't seem concerned by it, and the drinkers noted unconcerned seemed to be the general attitude of those with authority in the plant. Cecil Drinker later wrote, There seemed to be an utter lack of realization of the dangers inherent in the material which was being manufactured. In the painting studio, the doctors did a thorough medical exams of 25 of the women, and Sarah Millefier was one of them. The doctors checked their teeth, prodded around their noses and throats, and took blood samples. Then Dr. Catherine Drinker would take some of the women to the dark room to determine to what degree they were luminous when fully in the dark. The dust got everywhere on these women, on and under their clothes, and, quote, persisted in the skin, even after washing. They also went to meet Dr. Barry and some of the dial painters exhibiting similar symptoms, including Grace Fryer, who, thankfully, by this point was doing better. Marguerite Carlo was not improving, though. She started seeing Dr. Neff, who had treated Molly Magia. He would drive the 15 to 20 miles to her house at least once a day, but sometimes up to six times a day. Marguerite had become pale and thin and now had a constant discharge coming from her mouth. The drinkers finished their study and delivered a lengthy report to the firm on June 3, 1924. Vice President Veit wrote to John Roach of the Department of Labor two weeks later and included only the table of the workers' medical test results, which showed their blood to be, quote, practically normal. He wrote, I do not believe that this table shows a condition any different than the similar examination would show of the average industrial worker. It seemed the company was not at fault for the girl's failing health, and President Rader was quick to spread the word. Around this time, Dr. Bloom, who'd been still treating Hazel Kuzer, appealed to the firm, begging them to help her financially. She was receiving significant amount of free treatment by doctors intrigued by her mysterious illness, but the bills were still piling up. He made sure to say he didn't blame the company, even though he did believe it was really caused by the pain. He was more interested in getting help for his patient however he could. But the company refused him. They were unwilling to help their former employee. Now that they had a report stating they did nothing wrong, they didn't need to worry about the women anymore. That summer, Dr. Bloom also began seeing Catherine Schaub about her jaw, who had a tooth pulled in May, but it wouldn't heal over. When he saw her in July, he advised work be done when she was in a better physical condition to do so, but until then there was nothing to do, so she ended up in his office over and over. Hazel wasn't faring any better and couldn't talk anymore. Her mother accompanied her on all of her visits, and by the end of the summer, she was admitted to the hospital, where she ended up staying for three months. She was finally released on Thanksgiving to go home, but on December 9th, she passed away at home at the age of 25. Her body was in such a bad shape that the family did not allow anyone to see it at the funeral. Theo and his father had ran their debt up to $9,000, the equivalent of $125,000 today, trying to keep up with the medical bills to help her. Along with the dentists and doctors that were trying to help the young women was Catherine Wiley, whom Lenore Young, an Orange County health official, had written in April of 1924. Lenore had become frustrated when her recommendation to notify the public health service had been ignored by the Department of Labor. Catherine Wiley was the executive secretary of the Consumers League and head of the New Jersey branch, a national organization fighting for the better working conditions for women. Wiley reached out to John Roach at the Department of Labor, and he gave her a list of the affected women, not informing his boss that he did so. Wiley met Marguerite Carlo in May as part of her investigation and was shocked by her appearance. Wiley later wrote, After seeing one of the victims, I can never rest until I have seen something done whereby I am assured it will not happen again. She interviewed several more of the women on the list and also visited the housemate nurse that had carried for Molly Magia. When she heard that Hazel Kuzer's mother wanted to get compensation, she consulted a local judge to get advice on how the families could take legal action, but didn't get anywhere with this. The families had trouble finding a lawyer to represent them, too, as they wanted cash up front to do so, and the families just didn't have it. On May 19th, Wiley went to the Department of Labor, going straight to Commissioner Andrew McBride with her investigation reports, who was furious that the Consumers League had gotten involved and that Roach had given her the list of names. Wiley didn't back down, though, demanding an investigation by the U.S. Public Health Service. She continued to stay in touch with the families, and after Hazel passed away, she first wrote to Dr. Alice Hamilton, a scientist who is considered the founder of industrial toxicology and was a champion of victims of occupational disease. Dr. Hamilton was the first female faculty member at Harvard, whose department chair happened to be Cecil Drinker. The Drinkers had not published their report yet, and Hamilton did not know about it. Hamilton offered her cooperation to the Consumers League, even proposing she do her own study. Wiley also wrote to Dr. Frederick Hoffman, a statistician specializing in industrial disease at Prudential Insurance Company and a recognized authority on occupational hazards. Wiley urged him to also visit Marguerite Carlo as she had, and he did. He was moved to help the women just as Wiley was, and wrote to President Arthur Rader, if the disease in question was compensable... I seriously doubt your company would escape liability. That it will be made compensable in the course of time if further cases should arise is self-evident. Then, finally, Marguerite Carlo found a lawyer to take her case and filed a suit against the United States Radium Company on February 5, 1925 for $75,000, what amounts to $1 million today. Others would join her suit soon. The Radium Girls were officially taking a stand. And that is where we're stopping for today. We'll continue these women's stories next week. Thank you for attending this Her Story Session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.